Welcome. It's been good to already to worship with you, and um, it's been good as I've been getting ready to bring this word to you. I've been really excited that we've been doing a Revelation series, even though I haven't been here for most of it. I've just gotten back from a trip to Israel with InterVarsity. That's another story. It was very good. So it's great to be with you here on this Pentecost Sunday. So I want to start with a story. I was once a millionaire philanthropist. I lived in a large home. Other people did our laundry, cut the lawn. We had fruit trees growing out back. I had privilege and access to the resources far above most of the people in my community, and I was able to help a lot of people. It's true, it was in my 20s. Now, context is crucial to every story, right? Because, okay, so it was 1999 to 2002, Cleans and I lived in Zambia. We were with a group called Mennonite Central Committee for a three-year volunteer assignment. So volunteer, already the story's falling apart, right? So I worked as a high school science teacher. The currency, the millions in my bank account, were Zambian kwacha. So about 3,000 equals $1. So $1,000 is, I had $3 million, or sorry, kwacha in my account, which goes a long way in a country like Zambia. The people doing our, our house and yard work, Godfrey and Estelle, were these lovely local people. And we sort of rejected that whole thing at first. But then we realized, actually, all the families, even down to the village families, have people working in their homes together. So we were just sort of getting on board with the local economy by hiring them. And um, the money that I had, all the millions, were not mine. It was gladly given by donors for us to work on development projects. So then as we were coming home to Canada in 2002, I had just gotten so into this feeling of being able to help so many people. And I, I really, this word philanthropist, I, I wanted to come home and continue giving my tens and my hundreds of dollars to continue helping people and to transforming lives. One of the best examples from my time in Zambia is a young guy named Aston. So he, he had been a really, a really bright student, but really poor. So the best $30 I ever spent was to pay his semester school fee, which we then did every rest of this high school semester. He then went on to, to graduate at the top of the high school. Once we were back home in Canada, our family got involved, and we were able to help him get through his undergrad degree in Zambia. He was then admitted and sent by their university to England to do a master's in chemistry, uh, hired by the university, and now he's finishing a PhD in chemistry in South Africa. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I mean, this, this, this sort of has transformed our own lives. And uh, you know, in as much help as I would have wanted to do in his village and the surrounding villages that I couldn't help, he is now doing. Not only is he studying, he's, he's bought some semi-trucks and farm equipment, and he's actually transforming the local economy in, in that village. So what's the point of the story? Why am I speaking about this as we come to this text for me, it's an example, a lived example, as we've had the opportunity, in a sense, to come out of Babylon. What do I mean by that? We've, it's been a chance for us to reorient how we spend our money and how we relate with our community in a world that doesn't favor the poor often. So we're going to talk in a moment about what, what, what does the scripture mean by Babylon and what does Jesus call as he's calling us out of Babylon. So I hope you're ready. I'm going to open with a bit of a caution in that... Uh, you've already heard us use the word lament. This passage is a lament, and um, it should make us feel unpleasant 
We, we don't often like to leave church feeling unpleasant, especially in the West when we're, we're so privileged. But I want us to put our, our feet in other people's shoes this morning. I want to invite us to let Scripture rub us in a way that feels rough, knowing that it'll draw us closer to the Lord, knowing that Jesus sacrificed himself and he is on the throne securing victory for us. So there's going to be good news. So if you're new to the church or if you're first visiting this morning, you're, you found yourselves in the middle of a revelation series. So where have we been? Chapters 1 to 3 opens by opening our eyes to the reality that Jesus has risen. He's alive and he's dealing out both comfort and judgment to his churches. He wants to assure us that he's with us and that we can live in a victorious way in this world that's so compromised by an enemy. Chapter 4 and 5, Stephen preached, uh, where we, we see that there's a throne. Above all the churches, there's a throne in the middle of the universe, and this Lamb of God is sitting on that throne. And in fact, all of history is being dictated by this sacrificial love of Jesus. In that same scene, we also see this scroll with the many, the seven seals, and we we, we learn that it's, it's about to be opened and there's going to be judgment on the world. Then in chapter 7, Paul preached that uh, among every nation, we see ourselves as this, in this multitude of, of martyrs in, in robes. We're sealed by God and we learn that we can stand. We can actually stand through the crushing pressures of life. And one day, Jesus will come and wipe away all the tears. Chapter 12, we, we go even further back. Jesus pulls back the curtain on all of world history and church history, and we, we learn that we're actually living in a war zone against our enemy, Satan. What we, we've seen, we see in that passage how God has defeated him. He couldn't even win against a baby. He couldn't win against a mother giving birth. And God has been sheltering us um, and sheltering his plan to come to completion. So then we get to chapter 18. There's a bunch of intervening chapters where more unpleasantries take place, more judgment, and we actually learn that judgment doesn't win. Sacrificial love wins. But here we are in chapter 18. Judgment is being doled out. Evil actors and evil systems are receiving their just rewards. But before we go further, I want to speak just a moment on the word judgment, especially among young people. It might be a common phrase to say, don't judge me. Has anyone heard you say that? Or you've heard yourself say that? Don't judge me. Because we always think judgment is bad. Instead, let's consider the word to mean maybe determination. We need God, who's the good and holy judge, who has the right. We need him to actually determine what is both good and bad in our world. And isn't it awesome if that good and wonderful God would determine all the good things. Because many of you are doing, secretly doing many good things in this life. And someday God's going to judge that or determine that as good. And he's going to polish it off and say, well done. So that's part of judgment. And of course, the one where our mind usually goes is also necessary. It's that negative. It's that, that same God needs to tell us what is unholy. What is not good? What is poisonous? What is leading to death and decay? We need God's judgment because through it, he leads to life. So let's go. You might want to keep your Bible open in front of you. Even if you have a Bible on your phone, I encourage you to keep it open. We're going to look at a few of the verses on the screen, but other verses that are not on the screen. So we're going to start at the beginning, and we're 
what we learn is that it, there's two things that we're looking at here. First in focus is the city, Babylon, with its evil economic systems. In chapter 17, just before this, uh, Babylon is unflatteringly referred to as a harlot riding on the beast of political power. It says this, Babylon the great, the mother of prostitutes and of the abominations of the earth. So we've got Babylon. And also coming into focus in chapter 18 is God's people. And we have to remember this whole book is to the audience of these people in the seven churches, real people just like us. They were, um, and in this chapter, God calls them my people, God's holy people. So we have to remember this is a letter, a prophetic letter to a real audience. So let's start with the beginning. Let's start with Babylon and ask what's going on. So first of all, Babylon was a real city. Its ruins are found near modern-day Baghdad. It's mentioned all through the Bible and always in negative terms. So the meaning of Babylon, sort of as we get the meaning, derives from the Tower of Babel. You know the story. Babel was the crowning jewel of humanity who had left God. It was built by a people who said, let's build a new society without God. We will be our own Lord. So in ancient history, Babylon was an empire that lasted around 1,400 years in Mesopotamia, so uh, Iran, Iraq, that area. And all through the Bible, they were the traditional enemies of Israel. Near the end of their reign, they were the conquering empire that finally destroyed Jerusalem in 587 and dragged the last of God's people off into exile. And so uh, thematically, Babylon is a common metaphor all through Scripture to stand for any empire that's aligned against God and His kingdom. So back to those first century readers, they would have associated Babylon of their day with the Roman Empire. And in, again, back in chapter 17, it talks about this beast with seven heads that carries the harlot Babylon. And Rome was celebrated as the city of seven mountains. So all through this symbolic language, it's very clear to them like, oh yes, Rome is being called Babylon here. So any city, this is, we can think of today, any city that rides on the back of beastly evil power becomes a sort of Babylon. So the good news of Revelation chapter 18, and there is good news, actually depends on where you stand in relation to Babylon and its systems. So among those first century Christians, we have, we've, seen, we've seen them in chapter 2 and 3. Many of them are suffering. Many of them are being victorious as they live counterculturally to follow Jesus. So for them, and for people like them up to today, Revelation 18 is great news because God is finally dealing with the injustice of the economies and the cities that are crushing them. So Revelation 18 is great news. However, some Christians in the early church, like those we heard of especially in Laodicea and others, it's not as good news because they've been getting cozy with the comforts and the economics of Babylon as they try to mix a little bit of Jesus with a little bit of the Babylonian dream. So the good or the bad news of Revelation 18 depends where you stand. But the good, one of the good news is that Babylon will always fall. The Babylons of history always fall. They always implode on themselves by their own injustice. We move to verse 3 and 4. 
just to sort of fill out the imagery. It says, the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth have committed adultery with her. So you can see there's, you know, it's a little uncomfortable this morning. There's this sexuality, there's this economics, and it's not good. Jesus is painting a picture that is not good of their excesses, of their injustice that is going on. I'm going to skip a forward a bit. You won't see these verses on the screen, but from verse 9 to 19, if you have your Bible, it just goes on in the lament, and it sort of it gives you the perspective of the kings, the merchants, and the sea captains who are weeping and mourning because their luxuries, their products, their wealth systems, which all relied on Babylon, are now lost. I'm just going to read a short bit from verse 12. It says, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Their cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones, pearls, fine linen, purple silk, scarlet cloth, wood, bronze, ivory, marble, cattle, horses, sheep, and the bodies and souls of men. So what's true in their day, and it's also true in our day, is the luxury products of the empires all often, unfortunately, are built and harvested on the back of human slaves. It's just a crushing reality of our world. And as we skip forward to the last verse of the passage, which we did see on the screen, it says, in her was found the blood of the prophets and of God's holy people, of all who had been slaughtered on the earth. So if, if we just read those verses of all those fancy cargoes, you might have said, oh, that's nice. But Jesus here is wanting us to see the reality of the economy we live in that was then and is now. Because you see, in that time, Rome was a military state who maintained order and produced all this wealth through brutal oppression. Small states like Asia Minor, where these seven churches were living, had some autonomy. They could do what they want as long as they provided the raw materials and the slave labor for her brutal economy. The Roman Empire, Babylon, was consuming the lives of the people in order to keep its peace and to keep its products flowing. So the kings, these merchants, these sea captains in the passage, they actually offer us a lens to reflect on ourselves. Does the pursuit of Babylon and her exploitive economy define my path? Do I weep and wail and mourn as Babylon's unjust products or economics burn up and disappear? How am I doing during economic recession? Where does my hope lie? So does any of this matter today? I really think it does. Because you see, as we've been saying, Babylon is a type or archetype of all the economies in our world today. And we, in Vancouver, we're still mired in Babylon. We Christians are just like the early church Christians. We've been lured into a world where we support the empire, where it's wrapped around our hearts, and we so easily drift into that lukewarm compromise like the church in Laodicea. Because it, it, it's, it's natural, it happens, and uh, you know, it's just so lucrative. The, the presidents of our companies, the, the nations, we get into bed with her, we commit adultery with her unflattering as that sounds. There's just so much injustice in all of the, all of the products uh, and all of the ways our world is built. So, Revelation 18 is a tough scripture to read 
especially on a bright, sunny day, but it really draws our attention. It peels back reality to perhaps see the world in a way we don't want to see the world. Because unfortunately, those who live uh, among this, uh, on the other side of the world, they have to see it every day. We're going to talk a bit more about them in a moment. Daryl Johnson, in his book, Discipleship on the Edge, about Revelation, he, he lists seven things. How do we know if our city is becoming like Babylon? He lists seven things. One, he says, in city life, God is left out of the equation. In the city, sensuality dictates people's drives and desires. Injustice uh, is sort of in and through things in the city. There's a worship of products and wealth. There's a, a measure of violence, the belief that weapons can bring us security. There's deception and counterfeit, and there's idolatry, worship of anything else that's not God. That's a, that's a pretty harsh list, but does it, does it match our city of Vancouver? Does it match our lovely country of Canada? Does it match our capitalist market system around the globe? I think it does. And it's Pentecost Sunday. So with all the joy of the coming of the Spirit, I think in the middle right here, we just need the Spirit to help us with honest assessment of the empire we live in and honest assessment of how we've positioned ourselves. Do we stand with the kings and the merchants and the sea captains who are benefiting, gladly benefiting from Babylon? So that's Babylon. Now we switch to the second part. We're going to look a bit at verse 4, God's holy people. So Revelation 18 is actually telling the truth about those first century Christians. They're struggling with compromise, just like we are. And they need Jesus to hear, they need to hear from Jesus God's judgment of the system they live in so that they can heed his warning. His warning is this, I heard another voice from heaven say, come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. So Jesus, what's he saying? He's asking us, he's urging us to not let our hopes rest in the empire of Babylon around us. And he's not doing it to wreck our fun or to ruin our life. In fact, he's trying to lead us towards life and away from death so that you will not share her sins and receive her plagues. He knows what's good for us and we don't. See, in their time, just like in our time, the gods of Rome, the gods of Vancouver, they're just too shiny. They allure us and we need Jesus' perspective to see the reality around us. Because as our sinful selves, we see the idols around us, and we actually mistakenly see her as a beautiful woman offering intoxicating life. So then Jesus has to come along and say, no, she's a harlot. She's like a, she's like a harlot on a beast drinking the blood of the saints. It's graphic, it's ugly. So he's saying to his church, I see your life in Babylon. Come out of her, my people, so that you won't share in her sins and receive her plagues. So practically, let's, let's try and get practical, because I think spirituality should be very practical. What does it mean? What, is, what does it mean to come out of Babylon? So you can't literally come out of Babylon. Some have tried. You, you could try to move to the, I don't know, somewhere in the world where there's no economy or no, no, no progress. We can't. There's no bubble that'll shelter us from living in the world we live in. And so, in fact, it's helpful to look at the words. When Jesus says, come out, it's actually the same Greek word. Uh, it's 
exerchomai. It's the same word when he's exercising demons from people. Come out of her. Come out of him. So we get it when he's talking about demons, but we need to get that same sense when he's talking about these, these systems and these economic realities of evil. So what Jesus is talking about is no less than a spiritual exorcism of Babylon out of the hearts of the church. So it's very spiritual and it's very practical. He's calling us to divest of empire and to expel the empire that's been invested inside of us. Exorcism, isn't this a little too extreme, Mike? And, and as you're sitting there, you may be tempted to sort of defend yourself like, oh, this, this isn't me. I don't need this level of exorcism. That's too extreme. I'm a good Christian. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm living in this world. I'm fairly untainted. I'm, I'm actually pretty impervious to sin. Um, we want to be those good Christians. We're not the bad Christians. It doesn't take long to look through Christian history, and this is what the world is doing as they look at us. You know, there's the bad Christians. There's the ones who had the apartheid system of South Africa. They're the ones who, who had uh, African slavery. They're the ones who, who, who conducted sex crimes. So there's the good Christians and the bad Christians. No. Jesus calls us to reject that dichotomy and, and just let him put us all in the same boat and realize that the subtle same shades of Babylon are active in all of us. So step one of this whole coming out of Babylon is to accept his judgment, to accept that the sin of Babylon at some level is in all of us. And then two practical ways I think we can, we can cooperate with him and his spirit is this. We can consider where our allegiance lies. Ask the Spirit to show you. And this is Pentecost Sunday. And when He shows you where your heart really lies, you can begin withdrawing your allegiance from Babylon and putting it into Jesus and His kingdom. But that's tough because, you know, when your allegiance is in the stuff and in the companies and in the investments, it might actually mean you have less and you do less well in terms of the world's um, measures. Secondly, I think we can consider our appetites and desires. So again, let's ask the Spirit to show us, because the exorcism of Babylon out of us should actually lead to contentment with a simple lifestyle. It sounds simple, but it's, it's not. The Proverbs say this, give me neither poverty nor riches, but only my daily bread. Isaiah says this when he was speaking to a very wealthy uh, kingdom uh, of people at that time. Isaiah said this, the plunder of the poor is in your houses. Ouch. This could be us today. A, missi a missiologist named Jonathan Bonk says this, nothing could be more economically destructive than an outbreak of widespread contentment. <laughs> it's true. Talk to people in marketing. They don't want us to be content. But the kingdom of God is saying, let's be content. Let's not live with stuff at the center of our, our, our love uh, and our lives. Because the truth about a Babylonian economic system is that it's fueled by a desire for more stuff. So are you willing to live more simply? Are you willing to have a lot less? Cleans and I have just moved. We, we only moved down the street, but I'm, I'm kind of humbled and a little bit embarrassed about how much stuff we have. So we've moved in, but we're sort of, kinda, we're continuing to purge and purge and purge. Um, 
So Jesus has sent us. He knows we're in this world. That's an overarching message of Revelation. Jesus says, I'm risen and I'm here. I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm, he's among the lampstands. So he's with us. He's not a far-off God. So he's not pointing a finger of condemnation when he gives this kind of message. He says, I'm with you. Come with me and come out of the system. Because he's saying stuff like this. He says, be in Babylon, because that's where you live, but don't let Babylon be in you. Live in the world, but not of the world. We've heard that verse before. In John 17, Jesus prays this. He says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of this world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. So again, this is good news. It, it sounds dire, but Jesus is saying, I'm with you, and I have ways to help you be sheltered and to live in a different way in this world. But again, the problem with the early church, the problem with us is that instead of living as God's holy prophets in the empire, the followers of Jesus, just like the world, were allured by the financial prophets of the empire. So I have three personal examples that I hope you can relate to, and just a, a few things to walk through. So I want you all, if you have one, pull out the phone from your pocket. That's right, young people, I'm saying pull out your phone. Time for some screen time. As I was uh, uh, listening to stuff, reading stuff, doing some research, I realized that I have Babylon in my pocket, in this phone. There's Babylon all over this thing. There's an image I'm going to show you here. I read a little article by The Guardian this week, and it was talking about, it was asking us a question, is slavery involved in your phone? Because you see the, the minerals needed to, need to make each phone, and in particular lithium-ion batteries, require cobalt. Where does cobalt come from? Well, the, the Guardian article said that children as young as six, orphans, widows, poor people, go into mines, dangerous mines, and they chip stones, stone by stone. Then they come down to the river and they wash them. So they're surrounded by toxic dust, and they're in dangerous mines, and at the end of their day, uh, they'll get 65 cents by a mineral trader, often from Asia, because that's where all our batteries get made, right? Ugh. So this Babylon is in my pocket. So what do we do? How do we come out of Babylon, the Babylon of my phone? How do I come out? Um, so I just thought of a couple things. Why, why don't we consider using them a little longer than we might, uh, not taking that next upgrade that comes? Maybe using a flip phone. <laughs> you can see, I haven't gone there yet. But. And uh, not just the physical phone, which you know, is soaked in all this stuff, but I think we can consider our phone usage, both not just teens, but adults too. Because these things are designed. There's teams of psychologists that design this to be addictive. So consider whether it's a useful tool in your life or whether you are a tool being used by it. Secondly, so we'll just leave that up there. You can consider them because uh, it's a similar story. Babylon is in my snacks. A little chocolate granola bar from Costco. Sugar and chocolate is among the worst of the world's industries that could be labeled Babylon. Uh, African people to this day are literally um, taken from one country to another 
live in slave conditions so they can car uh, harvest cocoa cheaply. So when Clienza discovered this at the Urbana 2006 conference, it changed our family life. We, we cut back seriously on eating chocolate and we, we looked into fair trade chocolate because there's, there's a small but growing minority of companies that will market this, but they don't do it more because most of society doesn't seem to care. Australia, apparently, Cadbury only sells um, fair trade chocolate. So I don't know what would happen in North America if we said, we're just done with all this slave chocolate. But it, to do that, it actually costs more. You have to buy the fair trade $5 chocolate bars, and you eat way less chocolate. It's really, it was really tough on our kids. It's tough at birthday parties, at school, at church. There's chocolate everywhere. It was tough. And lastly, last example is our clothes, the clothes on our back. When I was sort of finishing up writing my sermon, I just thought, okay, I'm going to look in my shirt. So I don't know, maybe especially young people, look in each other's tags. I don't know if you could call out a few country names. The, the t tag I was wearing when I uh, made, was writing the sermon was from Honduras. Has anyone looked at a tag? Where, where are your clothes from? China. Cambodia. Bangladesh. Okay. Yes. Thank you. These are the real places with, where real people, just like us, sew and make our garments. There's a growing movement of people and even of companies that care about this. And, and you can actually research them. I, I don't have any data for you, but go at home. Go research brands that are on the bad end and on the good end. And then ask yourself, am I willing to spend way more Ha, like maybe $60 on a shirt or $100 on jeans? Am I willing to have less? Am I willing to buy used so that I don't participate in the slave-like conditions that come, that are made, that are uh, used to make most of the clothes we, we wear? Because very often our clothes are made by brown and black people in countries like Bangladesh because they are the places where the companies that we invest in can work without the inconvenient and costly human rights laws or environmental laws or minimum wage laws. What do we do? So if these things are true about our phone, our snacks, and our clothes, what do we do? How do we come out of Babylon? Because I could send you out of here and you could just feel really terrible and, uh, I don't know, go for an ice cream or something. But let's not do that. It's Pentecost Sunday. We need to look to the Holy Spirit. Let's not do that. Because just like our church... John's seven churches were on the edge of becoming of their world. And Jesus' goal for the church is to be in the world as ambassadors of a new kind of world, a new kind of economy, a new kind of justice with a new kind of king. And so to the theme of our church, of this whole series, this is why we need Christian community. We need the one church. We can't do it alone. This is why we need Jesus as our one Lord because we on our own are not good judges of what's going on around us. We need the good judge who's not far off, who's here to comfort us. And he sees clearly with his eyes of fire, like in chapter one. He's the slain lamb king, who's the king of kings. He died to make this all right, and he is making it all right again. We're in this middle part of the story, like in chapter 12, where there's this dragon battling. We're in that battle we can keep our eyes with Jesus on the prize of the God's city, God's world to come. And the result of, of being like this in the one church, worshiping our one Lord, is one mission. 
I think and I've experienced that the world actually takes notice when we, the church, lead the way towards justice. Not just economic justice or just uh, social political justice, but a real spiritual sense of justice. The world will notice because in, when we do that, when we do these things, we get to talk about our king. We get to talk about Jesus who's helping us live differently. Um, a guy who preached on this sermon at, at Urbana named Scott Bessenecker said this, our kingdom economics should be like a centrifuge. It spreads stuff out. It should be where wealth is moved to the margins. What if the church joined forces to push wealth to the margins to join our voices with those typically at the bottom? He called it centrifuge economics. Totally opposite of our capitalist economics, which gathers like a magnet. What if spiritually, practically, we joined with this kind of way of living? So I thought of Granville Chapel, and I feel like we've been participating in this. We get this. We've been donating funds to help people flee Syria. We're donating funds again to help the Jumar Ghul family leave Afghanistan. We do this locally with our Meet the Need offering, and I know many of you do it privately. And I think the Spirit is always inviting us. Are we giving gladly? Do we give till it hurts? And it's not just financial, but it is financial. But it's not just financial, because we can live as worshipers, constantly being reoriented uh, by Jesus in this world of sin. And so that's what we're going to do now as I call up the band. We're going to just end with a time of reflection where we will think about all that's going on in chapter 18. And on this Pentecost Sunday, we actually want to invite the Holy Spirit in all his goodness to come and to help us hear this word, to help receive this honest assessment of ourselves as we live in Babylon and ask, how have we positioned ourselves? We actually need to be shown what kind of exorcism is needed to come out of Babylon. And so a caution, again, before we sort of turn our eyes is, we can want to do this on our own. I know as I was preparing, I, I just kind of got grumpy. Kind of, you know, like, oh, I come on to Babylon. I'm, like, I'm afraid. And all this injustice makes me angry. And, you know, the stuff about my phone. I don't like thinking about that. So we could. We could just descend into anger, um, into to being afraid. Or we could actually just choose blissful ignorance, which is what our world does very well. Entertain yourself. Just be blissful. Those are all defense mechanisms against pain. That's what we do as humans. So the third way, the other option that we're going to do now is called lament. It's all through scripture, and we're not very good at it. We want to turn to Jesus in lament. Because as we do it, as we turn to, to Jesus the Lamb, he'll soothe us, actually. He'll cleanse us and he'll change us. Because you see, the Holy Spirit, he guides us to a kind of repentance that leads to life, not, not to shame and death. Shame and death were dealt with on the cross. The Holy Spirit leads us to hard uh, realities, but in a way that gives life. And you see, he'll help us actually choose those paths. And our, each of our paths is going to be different. It depends where we work, where we live. Um, many of us have the privilege of working with a lot of economic wealth, and that can be a huge blessing. Let's do it well. Many of us are wanting to, to get a job and to, we need more wealth. Well, let's, all of us together, whatever we are, we're going to learn to trust in Jesus so that he carries the burden 
as he says in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. So I want to lead us in a short reading of only part of Psalm 40. And at the end of it, I'll just give you a moment to ask you a question just to sort of think in, in this tone of lament. So let me read part of Psalm 40. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my mouth, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear the Lord and put their trust in him. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, who does not look to the proud, to turn uh, to, to those who turn aside to false gods. But may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. May those who long for your saving help always say, the Lord is great. But as for me, I am poor and needy. May the Lord think of me. You are my help and my deliverer. You are my God. Do not delay. So I'm just going to give you a moment as the band sort of plays quietly to just ask the Lord, where am I most tempted by this Babylon? And how is Jesus asking me to come out of Babylon? Take a moment in your own quiet prayer. team and I'm going to close this portion in prayer and you may want to come and pray about some of this stuff that is causing you lament and just lament with the Lord. You may have other things you would like to pray for or want to pray for. It's all, the floor is open and the Holy Spirit is with us. Let me pray. Thank you Holy Spirit. Thank you Lord, Father, Son and Spirit for your clear call to us today. Lord, do not let us be blinded by the seductive power and the pleasures of our world. In your mercy, Show us where we are cooperating with Babylon, how we are supporting it, and how. Give us the uncommon courage to come out of this system. Fill us with your Holy Spirit that we may be a source of truth in your city, in this city, and in the world. 